the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, reformers, tyrants, emperors, and economists on a racetrack to hell and high water. A sweet torrent of mass markets and omnibus editions raining from the heavens, and part 32 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gorg Huff. These are the co-authors of 1636 The Viennese Waltz, which is out now in hardcover at booksellers everywhere. This was also the team that brought us New York Times best-selling 1636 The Kremlin Games. Eric, Paula, and Gorg discussed their collaborative process, the novel, and more. We want to remind everyone that our original audio drama, Islands, serialized here on the Bain Free Radio Hour, is now available at BainEbooks.com. Film quality, soundtrack, original music, and a cast of fine actors bring this adaptation of Eric Flint's novella, Islands, to life. Get it at BainEbooks.com. Enter the search term, Islands, and watch it pop up, along with a John Ringo, Black Tide Rising novel, which you should also check out. It's the audio drama Islands, based on Eric Flint's great novella set in the Belisarius series. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. First, here's the news. The November Omni and Mass Markets are out. These include The Undead Hordes of Kangool by John F. Mertz. This is a magical fantasy realm where a young ninja must face an evil sorcerer, along with his horde of zombies, to help rescue a princess, and she does a bit of rescuing herself along the way. We also have Revolution, book three of the Secret World Chronicles. This is Mercedes Lackey and a bunch of co-authors. Metahuman superheroes attempt to put an end to the murderous Thule Society. This series began as an adjunct to the author's play on City of Heroes multiplayer online game and has now blossomed into this full-blown rich saga of its own. And our new Omni edition is Hope Reformed by David Drake, Eric Flint, and S.M. Sterling. This collects two novels in the general series, number seven and eight, The Reformer by S.M. Sterling and David Drake and The Tyrant by Eric Flint and David Drake. In case you don't know the milieu, these are worlds fallen from a technological galactic golden age to various levels of collapse. The two novels collected in Hope Reform take place on the world of Haferdine, where civilization has fallen back to the level of Rome. On this world, the AIs, Center and Raj, seek out a hero who will lift this world from its fall and return it to its former greatness, or die trying. In this case, it is Adrian Gellert, philosopher turned adventurer and ultimately to the leader of a new nation. My own addition to the general series, books 9 and 10, are The Heretic and just out recently The Savior, both by Tony Daniel and David Drake. These are set in a world that has the tech level of ancient Egypt, except they do have muskets and they also ride dinosaurs, analog dinosaurs. The Undead Hordes of Kangul, Revolution, and Hoped Reformed are now available at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gorg Huff to the podcast. Hi, folks. Hi. Eric Flint is the creator of the New York Times best-selling alternate history Ring of Fire series, beginning with his groundbreaking first book in the series, 1632. The Ring of Fire books are like the stars these days, many, many of them. Eric's writing career began with the 1997 science fiction first contact novel, Mother of Demons, which we are reissuing in the spring in, in, uh, in hardcover leather-bound edition. It's going to be nice. With David Drake, he collaborated on the six-volume Belisarius series and with a great many other writers, including David Weber, Charles E. Gannon, Katie Wentworth, Bryce Spohr, Dave Freer, and with Paula Goodlett and Gorg Huff. Eric also co-authored 1636 The Kremlin Games. Paula Goodlett is the editor of the Grantville Gazette and special assistant to Eric Flint. 
She has been involved with the 1632.org Ring of Fire community since 2003 and is now the chair of the 1632 editorial board. Paula is also the author of many Ring of Fire stories in addition to 1636 The Kremlin Games, the novel. Gorg Huff is a Texan who has done a great deal of research for the 1632 community as well as writing fiction. He's written numerous stories for the Grantville Gazette, now principally, he writes with Paula nowadays. Gorg and Paula's Russian thread of Grantville Gazette stories eventually became the inspiration for 1636 The Kremlin Games. Now Eric, Paula, and Gorg have teamed up again to produce 1636 The Viennese Waltz, which is now in hardcover at booksellers everywhere. So folks, anyone, anyone that cares to answer, was the Viennese Waltz based on a thread of stories in the same way the Kremlin Games was? No, uh, no. It, there's a big, long backstory that's, that will be published in a separate ebook uh, called 1636, The Barbie Consortium, but that is the background to the novel. But the novel itself is not written based on... It. The Kremlin Games is based on a serialized story called Butterflies in the Kremlin. Now, it was then rewritten, greatly expanded, and so forth, but there was that initial core that was published in the Gazette. There's nothing equivalent to that for Viennese Waltz. It's a novel that's written from scratch, although there is a big backstory for a lot of the characters in it. How did, uh, why did you then decide uh, on Paula and Gorg to write this one, and, and how did the idea for this, um, this installment come about, this ep- entry? first and we had the contract for that before Kremlin Games and then uh, that got put on the back burner because of timing issues with the rest of the series and the, and then Kremlin Games came out and we finally got back to Viennese Waltz uh-huh. also Viennese Waltz went for a whole bunch of changes about what it was going to be about in the process of fitting it into the rest of the major story arc. Speaking of that, where is it in the story arc? How do, where does it occur? We're in 1636, obviously. It's basically... I'd have to go take a look at the at the actual timeline. Paul and Gork probably remember this better than I do, but it, it sort of runs parallel to Saxon Uprising and a little bit after Saxon Uprising, but it's kind of running parallel to the book I'm going to write in a few months, which is the sequel to Saxon Uprising. So it's kind of a story on the side. And what's going to happen, there's a long, complicated history of this book, because originally the idea was that Gorg and Paula were going to write the entire story. I'm trying to figure out how to say this without a major spoiler <laughs> going to be a big event happening soon in the series. And Gorg and Paula were going to cover that in their book. So they started with that in mind. And then, but the problem was they had to stop because until I write my book, they couldn't go any further. And I went and looked at the manuscript and realized that if we, that if we did a little bit of tweaking, we could actually just make it a complete manuscript and end it before this big event. And it would be, it would work fine as a book. So that's what wound up becoming the Viennese Waltz. Um, um, and the reason it got postponed when we did Kremlin Games first is that it's it's that book, Viennese Waltz, is really tangled up with all the central threads that I normally write. And I wasn't, they, you know, Paul and Gork basically working faster than I could get to it. So we put Viennese Waltz the original version of it on hold while we did Kremlin games. Then they went back to it, and then they had to stop, though, and then we revised what it was going to be so we could publish it. And now they've already finished the sequel to Kremlin games, which is called The Volga Rules, which we've actually turned into Bane. So they've actually finished three books. Uh, this, is, this is the one that's being published right now, the second one. Excellent. I, I really enjoyed the Kremlin games. Um as well as this one. So what struck you, Eric, about uh, Paula and Gorg's writing that you'd want to write three books with these guys? How did the collaboration team come about? I think they have a kind of, it's a little hard to describe. All, all my co-authors are different in this 1632 series. Um, 
which I know frustrates some fans because they sort of want all books to read the same, and they just don't, and they're never going to. Um, and Gorg was the first one got published in the series way back in the first Gazette with a story called The Sewing Circle, which Gorg and Paula, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that story is included in the Barbie Consortium ebook. Yes, am I right? Yeah, yes, okay. So that, that sort of starts the whole... Technically, the characters in that story aren't part of what's technically the Barbie Consortium, but they're all related to each other. Um, the sewing circle that's in the Barbie Consortium has been tweaked to uh, display more of Judy the Barracudi's role. So even even going back that far to the original sewing circle story, there has been new material added. Yeah, I just thought I should... Yeah, yeah, no, that's important. The Barbie Consortium ebook is not just simply a reissue of stories that have been published. There have been quite a bit of reworking of them. They're put all together in what amounts to a unitary novel. It's kind of a, it's kind of a loose-jointed novel, but it is a novel now. Um, and it gives you the backstory to Beanie's Waltz. Yeah, anyway, that... Gord was the one who first got published in the series, in Gazette 1. And then I believe Gorg you had a story in Gazette too, also, didn't you? Yeah, uh, it that poor was, little rich girls. There was a sequel, other people's money. I don't remember which, but it was a sequel to Sewing Circle. And then Paul and Fred yeah, was that I, one he did on religion. Um, that was in Gazette too. Um, all right. Yeah. And what I'm trying to remember is, is Paula. What was the was your first story in Ram Rebellion? Well, yeah, because I didn't join you guys until 2003, and by right. that time... Right, so Paula's right. Paula's first story that she wrote, which she wrote on her own, appears in the Ram Rebellion. Um, and then Paula and Gorg started working together. I'm not quite sure how that happened, but they just started writing together. And now they mostly... You guys always work together now, or do you still write stuff separately? I think you're pretty much just working as a team now, am I right? Yeah, pretty. I don't write separately. Uh, Gorg does, I think, um, but I don't. Um, and then, anyway, they started writing a bunch of stories together. I've always liked their way of storytelling. I think it's a very kind of, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's a very relaxed, sort of, you might call it, artless way of telling a story. It's just very straightforward. Um, and I've always found it really enjoyable to read. Um, and other people do too. I mean, Gremlin Games made a New York Times bestseller list. Um, and I like, plus I also like working with them. Um, of course that's true of pretty much all my collaborators, but, but, um, it's a very relaxed three-way process. We discuss the book ahead of time and they write the first draft and that's, once they've got a first draft ready is when I come back to it. And then I will do some writing, but but not a lot. Mostly what I'm doing is reworking, working with them to rework the material, but they're usually doing the writing. There are, I will write some parts of it um, right at the end. Um, but um, that's kind of the way we work together. And, uh, you know, it works, and readers like it. Um, so, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> Well, you guys all live a considerable distance from each other. Uh, you have met each other in person, haven't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have a mini. The, the, the 1632 series has its own convention that's held every year. We move it around. We have it hosted at uh, some other convention will agree to host it for us. Uh, this past uh
active participants in Series 1 to go. It was about a dozen of us went, and Gorg and Paula were both were in that uh, part of that. So, yeah, we've met many times. Well, the... Uh, we've... Awesome. Paula now lives in, in Florida. She used to live in Oklahoma. And I have not budged. I live in the Chicago area. So, yeah, we're, we're pretty far distant. But, you know, I have collaborators. Dave Freer is South African. Now he lives in Australia. So distance really yeah. doesn't matter anymore. Dave is literally on the other side of the world from you. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Uh, um, you, we've interviewed Eric before, and he's talked at, at some length about the 1632 community. So... Um, I would refer everyone back to some of those podcasts because it's really an amazing uh, writing community. But let's get into the book. So you keep saying Barbie Consortium, Barbie Consortium. What is that? After the Ring of Fire, seven little girls who were the middle school cheerleaders of the middle school in Grantville got together and sold their Barbies after the Ring of Fire and invested in other projects. They called themselves, mostly because they were 12 and 13 years old and didn't know what, what, what it meant, the Barbie Consortium, because it sounded cool. Over the ensuing years, in a very, very, very bull market, they were exceedingly successful in parlaying the money they got from selling their Barbies into a medium-sized fortune for each of them. They are still a group of young people, not necessarily young women and certainly not necessarily uptimers, who get together on deals and put together deals to uh, invest in new projects, to bring, uh, to buy companies that are in trouble and turn them around. They're Larry the Liquidator uh, and teenage and teenage girls all all rolled into one. <laughs> Well, we should uh, we should say for those that don't know that um, the world here is there's a West Virginia town that's been thrown back into the 1630s in uh, the middle of of Europe, and so that's in the that's our basic setup. So there's uptimers who are people from basically our era, and uh, downtimers who are the people that were there when when it arrived. But uh, most of you will know this who are listening. Um. Who who is uh, Carl von Lichtenstein, and uh, how come he's called Kendall by the Barbies? Although I think I can guess that. Because according to the twelve-year-old Barbies, the function of a guy is to look pretty and give them money. <laughs> That's what the Kendall does. He's quite rich, right? He's um. You don't want to get me involved in that discussion. <laughs> <laughs> No, but actually, that is, it, it, you know, when little girls play with Barbie dolls, that's what Ken does. You know, he stands around and looks pretty. Yeah. He's the escort. And if he's the escort and you're a girl, then he's paying. So, yeah. Why did they make so much money from selling their Barbies in the first place? And um, don't they, they invest in uptime technology that they're reintroducing or introducing for the first time into into the 1630s? To world, mostly also play the stock market, buy companies that other where other people have started to invest in uptime technology and haven't done so well. It isn't just having the uptime technology isn't quite enough. It's a lot closer than just having an idea for an invention is in the modern world, but it's still not enough to actually have a successful business. And it turns out that a lot of the uptimers are, have the idea, have the knowledge of how to build this uptime product, but really aren't good at handling the business. And one of the functions that the Barbie Consortium does, that the Barbies do, have learned to do, is go in and find these businesses where it doesn't work, and often as not, put a downtimer in charge who does know how to run a business. And they ran into a cash flow problem, and Carl von Lichtenstein is a real character from history who was part of the founding of the Lichtenstein family, 
which for a long time and still is one of the richest families on earth. So Carl really was a young man who looked good and had a lot of money, and he invested with them. What's the so the Barbies were worth a lot when they sold them off? Is that's where their initial uh, nest egg came from? It came from selling the actual Barbie dolls, which were a extreme luxury. You got to remember this. This is we're close to the same time period when there was the tulip craze, and people were paying a fortune for tulips. And these time people arrive from the future, and they've got these dolls that don't look like anything anyone else has ever seen. And you know, it's a one-time kind of fluky deal, but but people are willing to pay people a lot of money, and no one in which people are willing to pay a ton of money for these Barbie dolls. And that's where they got their initial nest egg, which is a pretty damn large one. And then since then. They wound up handling it well. Carl uh, has fallen in love with one of the Barbies, uh, who is Sarah Wendell. Um, tell us about Sarah. And she is a member of the Sewing Circle, and uh, basically the Barbies played matchmaker at, to an extent and helped Carl uh, date Sarah. Basically, a great deal of the story is about the the relationship. Um, a lot of the love story portion of it is, is between Carl and Sarah. But tell us about Sarah's character. She's a bookworm and um, a geek. She really is. Sarah's the geek in the family. Uh, Judy's the people person. Sarah is a numbers geek. And because of her parents and because of her situation, Sarah ended up studying economics rather seriously because right after the Ring of Fire, they really needed to figure this stuff out. It was very important. And Sarah sort of got caught up in that, and it found her vocation. And she tends to think of the world in terms of numbers and income projections and market baskets. Um, but she's not really good on a person-to-person -person basis, but Carl is. And the charming prince found the beautiful girl hidden under the bookworm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How's that? Well, Sarah, she's she's really trusted by, like, kings and emperors in, at this point. She never claimed to be, you know, a genius economist, but... Uh, how come, somewhere in the book, you have one of the uptimers muse about why so many ordinary people of Grantsville, Grantville have turned into these extraordinary leaders, and some haven't blossomed, of course. Um, so how come Sarah's able to be the counselor of entire kingdoms? Um, what makes that plausible? Mostly because they have a set of knowledge that, to a great extent, came with them. And also to an extent because they have a certain cachet from being up. The truth of the matter is that there are a lot more people who have talent than have opportunity to express that talent, which is something we, I think that's the discussion you're talking about. There, even though not everybody, not even most people have the talent to be a CEO, there are a lot more talent a lot more people with the talent to be a CEO than there are jobs as CEOs. That's kind of a basic assumption of the whole Ring of Fire series, isn't it? I mean, that, uh, that people placed in extraordinary circumstances will rise to the occasion, or, or not all of them, but a lot of them will. Uh, yeah. The other thing that's going on is uh, the Fortney family, which is on the, as the book begins, it's on its way to Vienna, um, including... Uh, Haley Fortney, who's one of the Barbies, um, one of the well-to-do Barbies. Can you explain uh, what Ferdinand III, who is the uh, heir apparent to the uh, to the Holy Roman Empire, as we begin the book, um, has hired the Fortneys to do for him? That's actually Eric's fault. He stole oh, one uh, of our characters. <laughs> well, <laughs> Eric took one took a Fortney character. We'd been around with a bunch of different things that we might do with different Barbies. And uh, one, of, uh, one of the things that we mentioned as a possibility was using Sonny Fortney as one of Francisco's agents. 
And we'd actually had him go, go off to a totally different place. But that idea percolated through, and Eric picked it up and decided that uh, Frisco was going to send him off to Vienna to be, uh, well, uh, uh, an auto mechanic for Ferdinand and basically suss out the political situation in Vienna from an uptimes, uptimer's viewpoint. So he's spying a little bit, but he also is building a racetrack. I mean, those guys are, they're actually doing something. Um, how come, how did they, uh, how come Ferdinand wants a race car? Because wouldn't you? And you're the king of the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> this is, the, you know, the, the, they've got these magical, new magical devices that go real fast. Wouldn't you want one? If you could afford it? Well, it'd be kind of hard to drive it. Uh, uh, that's part of the problem, that they have to actually construct the infrastructure to drive the thing on, right? Yeah. Right. And that's how, partly how Sonny gets the job. Though he's also got steam experience. He's a steam head. So uh, they basically they're importing these uptimers the from Ferdinand's point of view he's importing these uptimers both for his car and to have the uptimer viewpoint the uptimer knowledge he's he's trying to acquire it what kind of car is that by the way the 240z well the reason for the 240z just simply because a friend of mine owned one years ago and I remembered it uh the thing about the uh, the mechanics in Vienna, uh, that they first get introduced in a short novel I wrote for Ring of Fire 2, uh, that anthology, which is called The Austro-Hungarian Connection. And they're really just a plot device. They're not actually intrinsically important characters for me in that story. I just use them as a plot device to introduce both the young emperor, he's, uh, Ferdinand III, and... The guy who's a very close friend of his, named Janos Grugas, who's a Hungarian nobleman and who was a major character who has become a more and more important character in the whole series. And it was really Grugas that I was interested in. Um, so I don't even remember exactly how or why I came up with the idea of a couple of car mechanics along with the Datsun 240Z going to Vienna. I don't even remember how I came up with it, but I, I really just did it as a way of hooking into the story. Uh, and then as often happens in a 1632 series, somebody else then comes along, in this case, Gorgon Paula, and then pick up on what, for me, was just a plot device and, and actually make them much more important characters in another story. So that's basically what happened with that. So Ferdinand is or is about to become emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, his rival, Albrecht, who in our timeline was killed, is in Prague, and he's the ruler of, I guess you would call it, Bohemia. Um, can you just tell us, what is the political situation right now in, in this area, in the Ring of Fire universe? Well, technically Austria, which is now, here's what happened, first of all. In, in, we changed history some. Uh, what we call the butterfly effect. It's, it's plausible because enough changes would happen so that the old emperor, Ferdinand II, we have him die off sooner than he actually did in real history. Because we want to basically just get him out of the way and get his son, Ferdinand III, on the throne. Ferdinand III is a pretty attractive character historically, uh, a lot more so than his father. Uh, and partly just by virtue of his own personality, partly because his sister wound up running off, this is told in the novel Bavarian Crisis, and wound up running off and getting married to uh, uh, a branch of the Spanish Hopper family, Fernando, and she is now effectively the queen of the Netherlands. And the two of them are quite close, and they stay in touch, and, and they're modernizers. Now, they're modernizers within you know, an establishment framework. They're not revolutionaries. But um, Ferdinand realizes that, that the way the that, that the Austrian Empire was going, one thing he can read the history books, and he knows that, that Austria is going to collapse uh, eventually. 
And so what he decides to do is forego the policies of his father, stop trying to force people to accept Catholicism, and instead he's going to try to create ahead of time an Austro-Hungarian empire, but he's going to try to do it on a somewhat more stable basis than the one that really existed. So that's what he's setting about to do. Um, meantime, Wallenstein led a rebellion in in uh, in Prague, which is recounted in my story, The Wallenstein Gambit, which is a short novel that appears in the first of the Ring of Fire anthologies. And Wallenstein has now created an independent kingdom of Bohemia, which in real history was under the control of the Austrians. But he's broken away and he set up his own kingdom. Right now, there's technically still a state of war between Bohemia and Austria, but Janos Grugath in particular keeps trying to get his king to make peace because what he's really worried about is the Ottoman Turks because he thinks the Ottoman Turks are going to be attacking Vienna. The emperor tends to think that they're not because they didn't do it in real history until many years later, but he's starting to come around actually to uh, uh, Janos's viewpoint because uh, uh, well, there's just evidence piling up that that's what they're what the Ottomans are going to yeah. do. So that's basically where things stand right at the moment. So there's this looming possibility of um, of the Muslim the uh, Ottoman Empire. Yeah, the yeah. Ottoman Empire did in fact attack Austria and besiege Vienna in the year 1683. So. They actually did do it 50 years later in real history, and it was a uh, what kept them from taking the the, the Austrian uh, the the Ottomans tried to take Vienna twice. The first time they did it was under Suleiman the Magnificent in 1525, and then the second time they did it was in 1683. And what defeated them was the King of Poland Jan Sobieski led a Polish army down in alliance with Austria. And it was actually the Poles more than anyone else who defeated the Ottomans right outside of Vienna in 1683. Now, all kinds of things are changing in this thing. The role of Poland is going to be real different for one thing. Uh, and we're moving up the... Uh, Christ. All right, uh, this is a, a spoiler, but I've, if, if people haven't figured this out by now, anybody's been following a series, they're, they're morons. Um, the Ottomans aren't going to be attacking. Uh, the current emperor of the Ottoman Turks is a young man named Murad IV, who was pretty brutal, but he was extremely capable. Uh, he was the most capable emperor the Ottomans have had in about a century. Uh, in real history, he died pretty young, but I'm not sure it's going to happen in this one. Um, anyway, that's what the emperor's main advisor, Yanis Grugas, is worried about is the Ottomans. So he's trying to get to just make peace with Wallenstein and end it uh, so they don't have to worry about fighting on two fronts. I don't know if that makes it clear. It's a little hard. Central European politics, you don't have a map, can be kind of hard to follow. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of discussion of economics and monetary systems in the book. Now, it keeps from getting dull because we see the consequences of all those different systems in the story, um, in the action of people's lives. What what is the monetary condition of the Austria Austria Hungarian Empire? How how come the Reichsthaler isn't worth so much? The monetary condition of all of Central Europe is that there was not basically enough money in the economy or faith in money in the economy to support the economy they had. They were at low productive production levels because there wasn't not enough money circulating and it wasn't circulating fast enough to allow them to produce to anything like the capacity they already had. Uh, when the ring of fire happens and increased productive capacity starts coming out of that, that makes the problem worse. And the response to that that is available to them is to create more money, to introduce 
enough money to introduce ways of transferring money faster so that there can be enough money to grease the wheels of the economic engine. Because without that, it freezes up and collapses. And the whole of Europe was in a state of economic collapse pretty much from the beginning of the Thirty Years' War. Mm. In our history, and it stayed in a state of pretty much economic collapse. Oh, well into the 18th century. And the one that brings that um, that insight to everybody is Sarah Wendell in the story. Yeah. Yeah, Sarah Wendell studied the economics because it was important to them and the time. I ended up studying the economics by accident because I had to figure it out for the sewing circle. <laughs> it's amazing how things come about in this uh, this wonderful collaborative universe of uh, of Eric Plants. Yeah, there I, there are already at least one fan has written a review of this book who, who grouse and complain because it spends time on economics. Um, this has been kind of a characteristic of the whole series. Um, we don't do it very often, but in one or another book. Time is going to be spent on things like legal structures. I wrote several pages on tax code in uh, 1633. There's a lot of economics in this book. Uh, in a book I did with Virginia DeMars, actually both books I've known her, a whole lot on genealogy and so on and so forth. This is actually real life. Um, and part of what we wanted with this series is to have the texture of it, the density sort of of the world it's portrayed be a lot, have a richer tapestry than you usually get. Um, because in the real world, this stuff actually does matter. And, uh, you know, you can't do too much of it because after a while you will wear out your readers. But uh, we thought we presented this book in a, in a pretty lively and reasonably lighthearted kind of ways, but uh, yeah, there is a lot of economics in this book. Um, it's a reality of the situation, and this is the book where it takes up, gets taken up. Yeah. Well, the bad guys in the book are um, Carl's uncle, I believe, um, Gundaker. Um, he, he's got a special problem because he is a special problem because he's a banker to Ferdinand. Um, why does he not like the uptimers? Other than he's just an old stick in the mud. Uh, the the real gundacker von Lichtenstein had secret police in in his territory to uh, search out heretics, search out and punish heresy. Uh, he was not a nice man. Okay, our Gundacker is probably significantly nicer than the real character. Uh, uh, and in terms of, he was, he wasn't stupid. He was a very effective political manipulator and a very effective bureaucrat in Ferdinand's court. But, uh, he was of the faction that would rather see uh, a desert, a Christian, a Catholic desert, than a Protestant paradise. Yeah, I think he says that somewhere in the book too. He, he probably does. He doesn't like Baptists very much. <laughs> well, there's a. There's a great, and we've mentioned it, we've alluded to it, there's this great Carl Sarah love story um, that is uh, running through the book, and they're going to perhaps get a Morganthic marriage. What is that? What does that mean? Because it's used a lot in the book. A Morganic marriage is where uh, the, one of the partners does not inherit, where the children of the marriage do not inherit one of the titles. So the, a morganic marriage of the the Queen of England might produce children, but those children wouldn't be the next Queen of England mm. uh, or the next King of England. A morganic marriage between uh, 
the king of Austria-Hungary uh, and somebody else would, might produce heirs, but children, and those children might be very well off, but they wouldn't be the king of Austria, but they wouldn't inherit the crown of Austria-Hungary. A um, organic marriage is one where you don't get the crown, where the kids don't get the crown. Is it? It actually figured. It's. It, it, by the way, the term is morganatic marriage. Um, morganatic. It figured prominently in uh, um, the Baltic War because the Eddie Cantrell, who is one of the main characters of Baltic War, he's been captured by the Danish. He's being held in captivity in Copenhagen, and he winds up getting into a romance with King. Uh, Christian IV, one of his daughters, and Catherine. But it's a big point that's made all through the book, that Anne Catherine is not a princess. She's a king's daughter. And the reason is because her mother, Kristen Munk, was not, she was not of a high enough rank of the nobility when she married the king. So that her children, they're legitimate. It's a real marriage. It's not, you know, she's not a concubine. But her children are not in the line of succession, so that the line of succession for the Danish throne runs through children that Christian IV had by a, an earlier wife. And those are the central character there who figures the story is Prince Ulrich. Now, he is in the line of succession, but his, his half-sister, Anne Catherine, is a king's daughter because she comes out of a morganatic marriage. So that's basically... It was quite common in the time that... that um, uh, it could be it could be royalty or it could be nobility might marry someone whose whose rank within the aristocracy was so much lower than theirs that any children produced would not inherit the title. Usually, it was of the of the male figure, but it might be the female. They would not inherit the bigger title. They might they would inherit some lesser titles, but not the bigger one. That's basically what it was. Mm-hmm. So what's next, guys? Um, Paul and Gorg, uh, you've written uh, a sequel to The Kremlin Games with Eric that's coming up. Well, what the three of us are now working on um, is something completely different. Because we we do have, um, I think we still have a contract for another 1632 novel, um, I'm pretty sure. But the problem is that right now, Gorg and Paul can't really do much because... We we can't pursue the the Russia line any further than we have because we've already written the next book and that won't be published or at least a year. And until I can write a couple of novels, they can't do anything more with this Viennese thing. So what we're doing is developing a whole new project, which is uh, would be another Asidi Shard novel. Actually, we hope it'll be a series of its own. Uh, like Time Spike, if you remember that novel, which which is not part of the 1632 series, but it starts in the same premise of of you know these kind of weird alien sort of artifacts striking the Earth as what causing these time transposition events. And the 1632 series is of course by far the best known one. But I also wrote a novel of Marilyn Kosmaka called Time Spike, which posits a second one. And what Paul and Gorg and I are now working on is what would be a third Athedi shard strike that would hit a cruise ship in the Caribbean and take the entire cruise ship back into ancient history in the time of right after the death of Alexander the Great, uh, when his empire was in the process of falling apart and being carved up by... A combination of his family and the general and his top generals. This was a unbelievably best way I can describe it is Game of Thrones on steroids. <laughs> By the time it's over, not one member of Alexander's family survives. Almost none of the generals survive. There's about three or four. You know, it's really a time of enormous amount of, of uh, conflict and, and skullduggery. And we think we've got a hell of a good story that we're in the process of putting together. So that's what we're actually starting to work on right now. Well, it sounds really cool. Uh, but the book we are talking about now is the equally cool 1636, The Viennese Waltz by Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gorg Huff. And it's now at booksellers everywhere. Eric, Paula, and Gorg, thank you very much for being with us today.
Here's part 32 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse. These are known as the Grimnor Knights, and if the Grimnor Knights are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak, and the apocalyptic finale for humanity may be about to begin. Here's Bronson Pinchot with Part 32 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Vladivostok Primorsky Krai, 1905 The international observers had been invited aboard the new airship Kurosawa to watch the bombardment of the Russian fort. Officers from France, Britain, Germany, and the United States were on the command deck, gaping in awe at the destruction. The ocean was covered with burning oil slicks. A giant steel hulk exploded far below them and rolled on its side, breaking ponderously in two and heading for the bottom. The Russian fleet had been totally annihilated. The United States military attaché removed his pocket watch and checked it. Fifteen minutes, Captain John J. Pershing stated. The Brit, Nicholson, looked like he was going to fall over the railing in shock. The Kaiser's man was scribbling furious notes. The French major was still airsick. Pershing had to admit that he himself was a little nauseous, though not from the altitude. The Japanese airship creaked and shifted as it turned into the wind and headed for the port city. Already other dirigibles had gathered over the heavily fortified walls, and the Emperor's magical shock troops were leaping down, causing chaos among the defenders. Transport ships were steaming in for an amphibious assault. While the regular army attacked overland, it was absolutely seamless. As you can see, gentlemen, the Emperor's forces are as well trained as I have promised, their guide said. Today had been the first time Pershing had met the guide. He had been introduced as Baron Okubo Tokugawa and had recently been appointed as the chairman of the ruling council and chief advisor to Emperor Meiji. He was wearing a European-style military uniform, with a chest full of medals, but with the Asiatic touch of a red silk sash and a traditional sword, Pershing's gut told him that this was the man running the show. Perhaps now our nations can come to an understanding as to the Imperium's natural supremacy in this area. The chairman's sure enjoying the view. Pershing grunted a noncommittal response. He was no diplomat. What he cared about was how the Japs had integrated magic into their war machine. Incoming shells had been deflected by coordinated movers on the naval vessels. Heavies and brutes were storming those walls. Damage control had been conducted by torches who could put out the most terrible fire just by thinking about it. Hell, they were even riding on an airship designed by cogs. This was the beginning of the end. Either magic would be used to conquer the world, or the backlash would cause normals to become so terrified of his kind that they would be exterminated. How did you get so many wizards? Nicholson asked. Excuse me? the chairman asked, raising a single eyebrow. You're utilizing magic on a scale we've never seen before. How? The chairman nodded respectfully. Unlike in the West, here in Nippon, we respect those with such gifts. We take them in as they are discovered and give them the finest education possible. 
In exchange, they serve a term of six years in the emperor's military or bureaucratic corps. Brilliant, said the German. Pershing gave a bitter laugh. Yes, Captain Pershing, the chairman asked politely. My understanding is that you steal children away from their families as soon as you see a sparkle of magic, and then you put them in a prison where you can turn them into machines. Those who don't make the cut get experimented on until they're either useful or dead. The really strong get additional magic branded right to their souls. I can assure you that the imperial schools are a strictly voluntary affair. It is considered a great honor for a family to send their children to such prestigious institutions. The chairman was not easily riled. May I inquire who told you such lies? Pershing turned away from the destruction at the rail and looked the chairman in the eye. Maybe I was told by a Manchurian, driven gibbering mad with pain, who escaped from one of your schools with failed kanji branded all over his back. The chairman looked down at Pershing's ring and scowled. I see. Would you walk with me for a moment, Captain? He hesitated. The chairman struck him as a very dangerous man, but he was on a diplomatic mission. If any harm were to befall him, the repercussions would be severe. Japan was strong, but not strong enough to risk a war with the West. Yet. They were still modernizing, though at a shocking pace. It would come, though, he could feel it. Pershing nodded and followed the chairman toward the end of the observation deck. Guards with bayonets mounted on their rifles bowed and moved out of their way. The wind was louder now that they were steaming toward Vladivostok. Pershing could smell smoke and gunpowder on the wind. You are a knight of the Grim Noir? the chairman asked. Yes. So the society plans on standing against me, then? God, I hope so. That's not my place to say. I'm here representing the United States Army. But as one active to another, what you're doing here is wrong, Baron Tokugawa. I've heard about you. I know you're like me. The chairman folded his arms. I am far beyond you. Pershing tested his power. Baron Tokugawa's thoughts were far too well guarded for him to get even the briefest reading. No good can come of this. I'm begging you. If you follow this path, it will change everything. Splendid. He smiled for the first time. Pershing knew it was the smile of a predator. The time for change has come. Tell your society, if they want a war, they will surely have one. New York City, New York, 1908 the last iron guard stood at the end of the brick tunnel. Fetid water dripped down the walls and had flooded the bottom foot of the narrow space. The Imperium man balled his hands into fists and they burst into blue flames. The water striking him turned instantly into steam and began to boil around his legs. You will not pass, the iron guard shouted in Japanese. Glory to the Emperor! Glory to the Chairman! Ten yards. Pershing leaned back against the damp wall and peered around the corner as he shoved more shells into his Winchester 94. He worked the lever and chambered another round. Time was running out. The same geotel that had destroyed a thousand-mile swath of Siberia in one stroke was now targeted here and was due to fire any second. They had to get past that iron guard. They'd already killed three of the bastards, but lost half a dozen grimoire in the process. Sven, Bob, on my signal, hit him from the left. Southunder and Christensen moved quickly through the muck. Browning was still reloading his pump shotgun. John and I will throw down some covering fire. Bill, you rush him. The brute, Jones, just nodded his head vigorously, his courage surely fortified with alcohol. What about me? Traveling Joe asked as the little man squatted behind him. Once he's distracted, you get that device and break it, no matter what. He muttered something in Portuguese and disappeared. The famous cog, Nikola Tesla, had given them the information about his invention. The Imperium had tricked him into building it, 
and had kidnapped his pigeon to keep him quiet. It drew the power itself up from the core of the earth and spiked it on the surface, drawn to a complicated targeting spell. They did not know where the design was drawn, but they'd been able to intercept the Iron Guards before they could flee with the device from Wardenclyffe Laboratories, but rather than give it up, they'd decided to destroy themselves along with it in suicidal fire. The single test firing of the Geotel had managed to wipe out the entire Cossack army, and now it would slag the east coast of the United States of America. Not if I can help it. Now! Pershing and Browning leapt into the tunnel and opened fire. The gunshots were devastatingly loud in the enclosed space. The bullets and buckshot struck, sending the Iron Guard staggering back, but his body was laced with kanji of durability and vitality. He raised one hand and blue fire erupted down the tunnel. Pershing dove into the foul water to avoid certain death. He was hugging the bottom when the telepathic message from the surface arrived. Blue light growing in the sky. We've only got seconds left. Hurry. Working on it, Isaiah. When he broke the surface, Browning was at his side shrugging out of his burning coat and holding a shotgun with a woodstock scorched from the heat. The Iron Guard was distracted by Southunder's rapid gunfire as the other Grimnoir flanked him. The Iron Guard moved toward them, hurling fire, but jerked as the water around his legs was frozen into a solid block by Christensen. The Iron Guard lowered his hands, blasting fire into the ice to free himself. Pershing had once been the best shot in the army and showed it as he snapped the Winchester to his shoulder, lined up the front side and drilled the distracted iron guard in one eye. Jones crashed down the tunnel in a wave of water, his muscles driven with superhuman strength as he burned his power. The iron guard was snapping around, blood spraying from one socket kept alive only by kanji spells and fanaticism, liquid flame shooting from his fingers as Jones tackled him with a roar. Pershing was up and sloshing forward as he worked the lever. The power was rising up through the ground with a crackling rage. Soon it would supercharge the atmosphere and the resulting explosion would reach from Canada to Washington, D.C. It's firing! Jones was on top of the iron guard, fists hammering up and down like pistons as he slammed the man's head into a misshapen pulp. He rose, still bellowing, meat and hair dripping from his hands. Nobody messes with Wild Bill. Nobody! He kicked the body down the tunnel. We're all going to die. Vieira! Pershing shouted. Break it! Traveling Joe appeared with a splash next to him holding a strange mechanical device. It was humming and crackling with power. You mean this? He raised it overhead and slammed it down into the bricks, cracking it into several pieces. The electric tingling in the air died. The power was returning to the core. It's... it's dissipating. You did it. Yes. Yes, we did. Paris, France, 1909 The international leadership of the Grimoire Society had come together for the first time in a decade. The meeting room was plain, the building drab, and little would a passerby know that some of the most important people in the world had gathered there in secret. General Pershing, we are honored to have you as the newest member of the international leadership. Your bravery has saved the lives of thousands. He hadn't come all this way just to get his ego stroked. What about my proposal? As commander of the American members of the Grimoire Society, you are aware of the mighty challenges that face us. I'm afraid that we cannot honor your request at this time. Pershing pushed away from the table and stood. Respectfully, I think you're wrong. We need to recruit more people, not just actives, but anyone who has the courage to stand against the Imperium. The chairman is our greatest threat. The time to strike is now. The longer we wait, the stronger he becomes. We need to build an army and take the fight to him. We need more knights. There's strength in numbers. There 
is more strength in secrecy, one of the younger Europeans said, his English rough, his pronunciation stilted. War is brewing here, and I fear that our kind will be drawn into both sides. The Kaiser is already building active units. I, for one, fear our own government more than I fear the Japanese. Then you're a fool, Pershing snapped. There was a collective gasp. The Kaiser is a Barnum clown compared to the chairman. He's no mere politician. He's a force. The Geotel events have been blamed on meteorites, but we all know what they really were. No one in the American government believed him, but these people should understand. They had to. What if it had been your country that was about to be evaporated? Then I would still listen to the knowledge of my elders. The European looked at the three men at the head of the table for confirmation. The elders deliberated quietly amongst themselves for a moment, before the one in the middle finally spoke. Our strategy remains the same for now. We will contain the Imperium, but we will not risk an open battle. Secrecy is paramount. General Pershing, you will protect the Geotel device in the event that we ever, God help us, grow desperate enough to use it, but I do not ever foresee the need to use a weapon so terrible that its firing would be felt through the very fabric of all worlds. You will report the location only to the Grimdoire elders in the case that something should befall you. You're all making a terrible mistake. Pershing stormed from the room in disgust. Mar Pacifica, California, 1932. Sullivan pulled his hand away as dozens of memories flooded into his mind all at once. He remembered frustration riding in pursuit of Pancho Villa, confusion at the aftermath of wounded knee, the bitter, soul-crushing sadness of losing his wife and three young daughters in a terrible fire, everything, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat and finally three years of unbearable suffering. But those were blurry and had probably come over by accident. Others had been very specifically stamped into him as harsh as the light of day. What are you? Pershing appeared even weaker than before, if that were possible. I'm a very weak reader. I barely qualify as inactive. <gasps> But I've been saving up a lot of power. I thought it would only be fair to try and answer your questions while I answered my own. Thank you. I finally got to see the power. It all makes sense now. You read my mind? Sullivan asked. Yes. He closed his eyes. I was right about you, and now I must rest. Why'd you show me all those things? Pershing's breathing had grown shallow and erratic. Because someone must know the truth. Only a handful of us knew about the Geotel. I need you to destroy the final piece. Don't let him get it, because we have a traitor in our midst. I can't even trust people who are like my children, whoever it is. They're too strong for me to read, because... Pershing moved slowly pushing something towards Sullivan. He took it and found that it was one of the Grimdoire rings. Because you are the man for the job, carry on. Pershing sent that last thought with his power, then let out his final breath. General? His chest had quit moving. It was as if he'd found someone to pass the torch to and had finally moved on. Sullivan sat there for a moment, stunned. Jane arrived a moment later. 
studied General Pershing's still form and began to cry. That was part 32 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, as read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a magnificent statue of the original Barbie doll blown up to gargantuan proportions and made lifelike to the point of being a little bit creepy. Plus 27 bonbons and a brass cannon salute to Paula Goodlett, Gorg Huff and Eric Flint, co-authors of 1636 The Viennese Waltz. Don't forget that the ebook only prequel to The Viennese Waltz, 1636 The Barbie Consortium, is also available at mainebooks.com and fine ebook sellers everywhere. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Mm-hmm.